Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How are you doing? I'm your co-host, Brent Henson. I think today's episode is a perfect example of why we wanted to start this podcast. Not only do we get to hear a firsthand account of what a lot of us would consider an unimaginable situation, but I think our guest today will provide some insight on what training, communication, and compassion, all working in tandem, can do to help alleviate a crisis event. But before we bring her in, allow me to introduce the Johnny Carson to my Ed McMahon. He is Mr. Mike Warren. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great today. How, how are things in the great state of Tennessee? Very well, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> Not so sure about your, your shirt there. For our listeners, he's wearing a University I, of I purchased Michigan the shirt to shirt. upset Tennesseans. It says 1997 Heisman. It says Woodson on the back. Of course, Peyton Manning was supposed to win that year, and he didn't, so I do wear it to upset Tennesseans. Yeah, that's how somebody gets dropped from a podcast Very staff, quickly. just saying. As you and I were talking before, uh, I recently was able to attend uh, IACP in Dallas, and, and I got to see some really interesting uh, things from a technological standpoint. Uh, I got to see robotic dogs which kind of freaked me out. I got ran into our, our previous guest, Mike Rogers, uh, mm-hmm. from the drone episode. Uh, I got to spend a little time with him. I was once again reminded, as, as I got to talk to some of these people, how incredibly fortunate I am to be a part of that community and to get to work with people like that on a regular basis. And our guest today is no exception to that rule. Guest today is a lieutenant with the Culpeper Virginia Police Department. She is a certified member of the Crisis Intervention Team, and in 2019, she actually helped form the department's peer support team, which enables trained members a way to connect with officers in need and help them navigate the support systems within the community. And just last year, she was awarded the Virginia Chiefs of Police Valor Award, which recognizes law enforcement officers who, in the line of duty, perform an act of extraordinary heroism while engaged with an adversary at imminent personal risk. It is a pleasure of ours to welcome Miss Brittany Jenkins. How are you today? Thank you for joining us. Doing well. How is everybody else? All well here on the Western Front. <laughs> it's it's snowing here right now. It's a little bit early for snow. But uh, is it okay if I call you Brittany? I, I, re- I just realized but as we started recording that all I've ever called you is lieutenant, and that seems a bit formal for this this venue. So that's okay with you? Absolutely. For, for our listeners, I, I met Brittany last year. I was blessed to be able to present a couple of classes that her department hosted. I heard about her before I met her. I heard about these two people from Culpepper that had done this incredibly brave thing. And then I got to speak to her about it. And I said, at some point, I'm going to get a chance to talk about that incident. And this presented itself. So that's why she's here. But before we get there, Culpepper, Virginia, tell me a little bit about the town of Culpepper. How big is your agency, for example? So our agency, I know I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I think we have 48 sworn, 49 sworn 
we have a staff of about 56. So we're not considered, you know, a, a super large agency, but not small by Virginia standards. But but it's a pretty town, though. Your downtown is what I think of when I think about the, not the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, a, a typical downtown. It's beautiful. It is the stereotypical small down, like small town downtown where it's just his picturesque. You know, you see the Blue Ridge Mountains from Culpeper. You know, our downtown is really the central hub of the town. You know, Davis Street is where all of the fun things for Culpeper take place. It's still very small town where we still have the car shows. We still do the little parades down on Main Street. And, uh, you know, our depot area, we, we host a lot of our third Thursday concerts and It's just very family-oriented. And and I want to point out here, Brent, I I told you that their social media person with the department, she is on the J-O-B. I mean, she, she does a really good job of telling all the good things, the community engagement that Culpeper Police Department seems to be involved in. It seems like you guys are really intentional about community relations. It's the number one thing on our radar, you know, because I feel like if you have that community engagement, it's the stepping stones for the future. You know, you're building those relationships now so that when you have a bad day, you know, they're there to support you because they know 100% we're usually right there with them. I saw that there were some guys that had the radio model race cars, you know, the remote control race cars. They had some of those in trunks and they'd pull up to kids and they'd have races with these kids. And I'm like, that is a great idea right there. Because normally when the cops pull up and they open up the trunk, something bad's about to happen or has happened. No, not with our guys. You'll, you'll be driving down a neighborhood and you'll see them out playing football with the kids or, you know, supporting a local lemonade stand or fixing a tire. Sounds like a great place to raise a family, really. It's the perfect place to raise a family. Now, Brent knows this, and uh, you probably already know this too, but uh, I have a pretty large dork streak. When I was there last year, I was asking the host, I said, hey, is there anything unique, interesting to do to go and see while I'm here in the area? He goes, hey, have you ever watched that show Moonshiners? And I'm like, well, as a matter of fact, I have. And he goes, well, you've got to go down because where the, the one of the, the illegal moonshiners has started doing things legally was just right down the road from the uh, from the training site. Huh. I, I found out that there's some of the celebrities from that show that often make appearances in the Culpeper area. Have you ever had the opportunity to run into any of them? You see them all the time. Actually, I was just driving down East Street the other day, which connects to Davis Street. And he, you know, one of the moonshiners was, uh, I can't remember his name, but he was behind one of our local restaurants going on in so uh, Brent I don't know if you watch the show but there's a guy on there whose name I'm pretty sure it's not his given name but his nickname on the show is Tickle <laughs> and it's my understanding that, that Tickle is well known not only in the community but hey, listen it's been on the show he's also had some run-ins with uh, law enforcement that that was a really interesting thing because it it, it, it was this picturesque place you go down to and uh, you get to see some of the stuff so I, I really enjoyed my time uh, in Culpeper uh, going downtown and, and eating and stuff like that. How, how long have you been with the police department there? Since 2009. Since 2009. And I, I asked most of our, our guests this, 
What made you decide to choose law enforcement as your career? It's actually quite a funny story. So I was born in 1987 and when I opened my eyes and took my first breath of oxygen, I think that that's where it started. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't delivered in the backseat of a patrol car, were you? No, no, um, no. The earliest memories that I have, and I tell this all the time, every promotional ceremony I've ever been to has always said that I was about five or six and my parents, I guess I had some fascination with police officers. My parents knew this. They bought me my first battery operated squad car. And uh, my little sister had a little pink convertible. We always called it the Barbie car. And I would chase her around everywhere. She'd get so mad. And, you know, I'd, I'd have the lights and sirens going, pretending to pull her over. So I had this absolute innate fascination with police officers from a very, very, very small age. Are you from a law enforcement family? I mean, are, do you have any relatives uh, outside of your immediate family? You know, parents, aunts, uncles, anybody that are, that's in the profession? So not your local law enforcement officer, but a lot of the three-letter agency, I have two family members who were FBI and CIA. Very cool. But now in your immediate family, your core family, you have a law enforcement connection now, don't you? I do now, yes. In my immediate bubble, my husband actually is a sheriff's deputy. I've said this before on the podcast. It is fascinating to me how service tends to run in some families. The people that are willing to serve, that they, they tend to flock together. And it's so fascinating to me how that happens. I think it's like a psychological thing, too, is we tend to emulate what our, uh, our parents or what the people, our elders do sometimes. So that, you know, sometimes we see that. The whole service thing, and I say it again, the Culpeper Police Department, they demonstrate more than a lot of agencies that idea of service. It seems like you guys not only want to engage with the community, but want to serve the community and and you attract people who want to serve. And it was funny because like in my original hiring process, they asked like, why Culpepper? And one of my first responses was, well, I plan to have my family here. You know, what better way to make this my mission field? Like, you know, we all do mission trips. There's a lot of us who do mission trips and stuff like that. I personally have not had the opportunity to do one, but, you know, I do one every day when I go to work and I say, you know, this is my opportunity to make a difference in my community. Now, Brittany, I have been told that as long as you tell somebody, that you're stealing their stuff. It's not plagiarism. So I'm giving you notice now. I'm going to steal what you just said because that perspective right there, that what you do and the people you serve are mission fields because whenever that term is thrown around churches and that type of thing, I'm going to serve as a missionary. And it's not seen as something is less than, it's seen as something that is honorable to go and do. So would you describe that as your view of what you do day in and day out, something that's truly honorable. Best job on earth. So my buddy says you've got a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. You get you get to have a part in it. So so tell me about Brittany as a brand new police officer. How, how would you describe yourself back when you started, especially highlighting the, the way that you've changed? What, what, what was different then that, that, that you're not that way now? I 
would say I had this this sense of innocence back then, a little ignorant because I grew up, I hate to say it, but I grew up in Bozeman, Montana. You know, we didn't see you know that much crime. You might see you know on TV a DUI arrest or you know something along those lines. But I grew up again in a very picturesque area. Montana. That's a heck of a long way from Virginia. Uh, so, I mean, it's not just uh, a, a new career. I mean, that's a that's a whole different part of the world. <laughs> I mean, same country, but different world. So where, where'd you go to the police academy? I didn't start off at the Culpeper Police Department. I started okay. off at the Culpeper County Sheriff's Office as okay. a deputy in the jail. Seven. I went to the academy at, in Fredericksburg. Okay. And then... Rappahannock, correct? Regional Criminal Justice Training Academy. And then I did that for about a year. And, you know, I, I laugh now because it was only a year. You know, I didn't do, you know, any math amount of time in jail or anything. But I would definitely say that being confined for 12 hours during your shift with a different part of society, I mean... And not a bad one. I mean, people make mistakes. You were you were speaking to people who really just went a different path in life or veered off their path for a moment or two. But you really learn to communicate there. You learn to talk to people there because you needed those relationships to be successful. And, and I know you weren't there for very long, but one of the things that I think a lot of people in society don't recognize is the overwhelming, in some cases, issues with mental health in the jails. We don't have a lot of the mental health facilities any longer for inpatient type treatment. So when something goes haywire, oftentimes where they end up are in our jails. And then we have correctional officers that have to deal with them day in and day out. We're getting better at it, but perhaps they weren't as prepared for that as they should have been. Did dealing with those in the jail that had mental health, is that really where your was your first contact, your first exposure to how broad that problem is, not just in the jail, but in society as a whole? Yeah, I would definitely say that that was the start of it, just on a very minor scale. You know, you see these people inside the facility and you you understand at that level at a at a jail level they really don't have a lot of resources available to the inmates at all and i mean i'm sure that over time because like i said i it's been a minute since i worked in a jail but i'm sure it has gotten better and i'm sure that they're doing more for them but yeah i would say that was my first real experience with drug addiction with mental health disorders that are unmedicated family issues depression you know at a very deep level and a lot of times those people come into those situations into those settings and they're either undiagnosed or they're misdiagnosed when it comes to the the mental health issues uh, which causes further problems for our correctional officers when you and I talked the other day, you had told me that basically over the past few years, you've been training. What has that training been focused on? As you guys stated a couple years ago, our department initiated a peer support team. Our focus was really on our officers' mental health and wellness and making sure that 
we did everything in our power to prevent an officer related suicide and to make their careers a little bit easier. You know, our job is not an easy job. We started training in peer support one, which is focused on officers experiencing crisis and what do we do? How do we recognize it and how to mitigate it where we know we should cut off and provide resources that are better suited for what specifically they're going through, whether that's saying, hey, you know, I'm going to recommend that you go visit a counselor or, hey, I've got a contact with a psychologist who focuses on EMDR. And it wasn't just peer support one. There was critical incident stress management. There was uh, CIT. You know, we our agency focuses on getting everybody through crisis intervention training, mental health first aid. I, it's a gamut. Uh, the COPS seminars, the Impact of Trauma Conference, different things along those lines. Our department was kind enough to send us to the IACP Wellness Symposium down in Miami. Uh, so for two years, literally, I feel like for two years straight, we've done nothing but train for mental health catastrophes. Let's go back to the peer support portion of it. What was the reason why, you know what, somebody says, you know what? on it, this is it. We need this thing right here. Uh, I mean, because it seems like you guys are investing not only a lot of time, but a lot of money into that program. So what brought that about? I think a lot of things came together with that. Originally, I had gone to some professional leadership academy. They had given us an assignment. They said, you know, we're going to we're going to give you homework over the next three months. I want you to go back to your agency and find something that you can do to better your agency. And so I had no idea this was even on the radar. I I had no idea that, you know, I'm we all struggle with mental health stuff. And me being in this for as long as I have, I, I was an investigator, so and a child crimes investigator at that. So lots of untouched trauma originally that I had no idea was affecting me the way that it was affecting me. So I went back to our agency and I had a completely different proposal. Had to bring it to the chief and it had to be approved. So our homework was to get it approved by the chief. It had to be trackable. It had to be manageable. Like we had to be able to like really do something with it. So I brought my other proposal to the chief and said, I got a bigger one. I've got a better one for for you. He's like, I I think you're going to do a better job at this one. And I'm like, okay, lay it on me. He looks at me and he says, I want you to start a peer support team because I don't want ever to have to deal with one of our officers committing suicide. It was a huge focus at the time, unbeknownst to me, I had no idea. It was a huge focus of the IACP. As I started diving into our research, because we were, why reinvent the wheel? There's other agencies that have peer support teams. I'm not reinventing anything when there's other stuff out there that is working. It's called wisdom. Yes, yes. So we're, we're smarter, not harder. You know, as I started doing this research, I was astounded at the number of officer-related suicides, like officer-involved suicides. And, you know, you go onto the Blue Help website in particular, and they keep a running log announced suicides. Now, that's not to say, you know, everybody reports them either. So that number is a small snippet, I think, I feel. I agree with you on that. A small representation of what it is. And for such a small snippet, 
it's towering at that time it was towering over officer involved shootings or crashes or health related things that you know didn't involve self-harm so as i started looking at it i said wow this really is scary this is something that a lot of these guys are struggling with and we have no idea bless the chief for allowing us the funding you know, he has said, whatever it is that you guys need, we will take care of it. And so it's kind of been my baby, our baby. I can't say it's my baby. It's our baby. It's the department's baby. And they have kind of given me free reign to do whatever I feel we need to do. And we've brought in some great help and great training. The reason why I think that this part's so important is because there's been this increased expectation that people like you and law enforcement are going to deal with those that are having mental issues in society. I get that. But what was the forgotten piece was that we weren't dealing with the mental issues that we were having internally. You and I were talking the other day that in a de-escalation class that I helped to write, the second module on it was emotional intelligence and understanding what's going on with me, because how can I help somebody in crisis if I myself am in crisis? That missing component, you know, God bless your, your administration for being such staunch supporters of that recognizing I can't go out there and be as effective if I'm not okay in here. I, I, by the way, I love your administration. I can't imagine working for anybody else. I mean, <laughs> I really can't just because they're so open-minded with all of our ideas. You know, nobody has a dumb idea. They're better the agency than they're 100% supportive. They not only provide lip service, but they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they invest a lot because you've also uh, started this team of co-responders. What, what can you tell me about the co-responder team that you guys have in place? The co-responders are two individuals. Actually, we have two now uh, through our local Rappahannock Regional or no Rappahannock Rapid and Community Services Board co-respond with us to calls where there's a mental health nexus. And really, I mean, all calls have some form of a mental health nexus. So they respond with us where we really should be stepping back as law enforcement because we're not mental health professionals. You know, they step in and can mitigate accordingly without us having to show up with a gun and badge and provide further mental health resources to people in need. For those who may not be familiar with the co-responder concept, uh, these aren't police officers. They're not armed. They're not arresting people and taking them to the sin bin. They are there to help those that are in crisis. Would it be safe to say that not only are they there to help those in crisis, but they're there to help the officers not to make the crisis worse? Because sometimes hand raised here, uh, we can do that because simply some of us aren't as trained as we should be. Yeah, I would say, like I said before, they don't have the gun and badge. And I think that that can be an instant de-escalator to send them versus us. You know, yes, we're going to pull up in a squad car with them, but we're going to stay back and let them work their magic because, again, they are the trained professionals. And, you know, we make sure that they're safe. You know, we make sure that we can protect them. But at the same time, they're there during 
death scenes, you know, where somebody is in active crisis. They're there for people who aren't on their medications or haven't been diagnosed with mental health disorders or diseases. You know, they provide a wealth of knowledge for us and try and explain why somebody is behaving or acting the way that they're behaving or acting. And we've learned a lot from them. And we've become a very cohesive team and really read off of one another during these calls. They know when to step in. I don't have to say anything. Uh, I was fortunate to meet one of them when I was uh, with your agency. I often talk about how dedicated the people in the first responder field are. I found him to be equally as dedicated and equally uh, with a desire to serve as my brothers and sisters in blue. Yep. Both of them. We have two now. When you met him, he was our only co-responder and there was such a need for Culpepper that we got two. <laughs> Tracy is just as wonderful. She's just as dedicated and we could not have picked two better people for that position. And so that leads me to the story I want to be able to share. If we've done our research correctly, uh, May 2nd in 2021, Culpeper Police Department uh, received a call, several calls about an, an individual. What can you tell me about the initial calls that were received by your, your agents? So on May 2nd, I was just coming into work. I was working a mid shift, so I was doing a 12 to 12. And as I was coming into town, you know, when we're in the squad cars, we're listening to the radio, kind of getting our feelers out there for what's going on in town. I was a lieutenant at the time, so I was ma uh, managing both day shift and night shift. You know, it's funny because normally at that time, I'm like headed to get coffee. It's like my first thought is this is the start of my day. I got to start it off right. And I'm a very consistent person. I need this in my life. <laughs> we laugh about it, it's but it's not honest truth. <laughs> so I'm planning on getting coffee and I hear the tones drop. I hear that a male has climbed over the fence at Verizon Tower and has started making his way up the tower, making the statements that he was planning on killing himself. Originally, I actually thought it was it was a prank. It had to be a it had to be a prank. This ha there's no way. Never in my 13, 14 years did I think for a second somebody was going to climb the tower. I mean, it sits right behind our police department. Really? No, I it's didn't know literally that. Is, it's like a couple blocks, maybe a quarter of a mile from the police station. So when I originally heard that, I just said, oh man, like there's no, <laughs> there's no way, there's no way. And being that it was Sunday, it was a Sunday and it was gorgeous out. I mean, could not have picked a prettier day. Clear blue skies, maybe a passing cloud once in a blue moon. Um, about 80 degrees, beautiful May day. Being that it's Sunday, you're not going to have many other staff. You're going to have your initial squad. You're, you're going to have your main supervision, which is a sergeant and a lieutenant. And maybe maybe you'll have a captain available. It's not gonna be full command. You're not gonna have investigations or community policing. The manpower is just, they're at home. So I'm sitting there and I said, wow, this is gonna be us. We're gonna be responding to this. And at the time when I first got the call, I was you know, headed into town. 
and uh, it took me no time at all to get to where they were. I, I stopped over off Old Brandy Road, which is the, the road that our agency sits on. I looked up. The first thing I did was I looked up on the tower and sure enough, he was still walking up. He hadn't made it quite to the top yet. And uh, I'm like wiping my eyes, like, am I really seeing that? <laughs> you know? Am I seeing this? Yeah. Yeah. No. And then thankfully, my guys were already setting up perimeter. We were getting a couple calls in at that time. He was being very loud and not shy at all about what his intentions were. So, of course, on a Sunday, everybody's home. So you start to get the people kind of sitting outside their house watching. Fire department had responded. Company one fire department for our, our locality had responded. And they, they had their bucket truck there. Uh, the sergeant was there. Two of my other officers were there. I said, well, the first thing that we need to do is try and make contact with him. You know, we need to try and establish some form of communication with him because right now all he has is the demons in his head going, today's the day. Stay connected to the Between the Lines podcast by visiting our website at betweenthelineswithvirtualacademy.com. You can listen to all available episodes, get detailed information about guests, and find links to all of our social media accounts, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You'll also find links to where you can hear episodes using popular podcast providers like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. New episodes available every Tuesday morning at Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. Just to be clear, he didn't stop climbing just because you guys arrived on scene, right? No, sir. He went right to the top. He, as fast as he could, he climbed that ladder all the way to the top. For context, how tall is this tower, by the way? <laughs> we sent our drones up at one point, and I think the drone was measuring about 250 feet. We never got confirmation from Verizon on like how tall it was. We would say it's anywhere from 250 to 300 feet. And he went all the way to the top because goodness knows halfway up or partway up is isn't good enough, right? From a communication perspective, that creates its own unique challenges, doesn't it? I mean, how far away you are from that person. That was the biggest issue. Uh, You know, I could scream all day long, but, and he could scream all day long back and we could hear each other screaming. (laughs) That was about the extent of it. There was no real communication going. He knew my name and I knew his name. That was about it. And and without getting into the, the particulars, were you able to figure out who it was, at least get an idea of who you were dealing with and what may have been going on? Not initially. It wasn't until we were like, hey, I can get a little bit closer if I go up in the bucket truck. (laughs) So (laughs) I was like, maybe this will work so we don't have to climb the tower. Because I know of being married for almost 20 years that screaming back and forth isn't healthy. That's not good communication. (laughs) It was not helping. And he was so, like, he really appeared manic. He would go through these stages of pacing and hitting things with this aluminum rod that he had pulled off the tower and scream and then he'd be calm for a few minutes he may not have gone up necessarily with something but he grabbed a hold of a a rod and was somehow able to take that loose so now he has a a potential weapon but that wasn't the only one though either was it no he did have a knife on him well he actually i believe he had two because at one point you could see him slicing at his arm and then that one appeared to drop so we thought okay well now we're only dealing with the aluminum rod and it come later you know we found out he had another knife on him 
did it work out? Did it help at all? You going up in the bucket? Not at all. I, I mean, I got his name. I was able to figure out who he was um, and was able to hear that he wanted to communicate with his wife. He wanted us to get his wife on the phone, which was very concerning to me because at that point it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing because she can help me talk him down, you know, if they have a relationship like that. But if they're the ones that are fighting and that's his trigger, then I don't want him to make this some last ditch effort to say, see, I told you, you push me over the edge and then jump. So I'm going to have to assume then because he was wanting to talk to his wife. He didn't take a phone with him. He didn't have that little tool because it seems like everybody has a phone with them at all times until you need them to have the phone with them. And he's on a cell tower, which is the ultimate irony. Yeah, <laughs> probably going to get good reception at that point. The bucket's not working. So I assume that you huddle up with your folks to try and come up with an alternative. What did you guys decide to do at that point? As I was up in the bucket truck, there were concerns being brought up about his landing area. So had he jumped, we were directly under him. So there was a big risk to not only myself, but another firefighter who had gone up in the bucket truck with me, run the bucket. And they said, you know, where he's at, and he was teetering. He was literally standing on the edge where there was no railing. And he was just hoping that a big enough wind gust would just take him off the tower at that point. When we talk about this tower, I mean, this thing is large. And in fact, it has little platform that he was standing on. So it's not like he's holding on to the side, but there's no railing on this thing to help keep him up there, correct? There was railing on the, the majority of it. Small railing is very tall. So very short railing. And then in one section, it had no railing. So he was literally just on the side and you would see him kind of lean forward and I kept envisioning him falling like I, I said to myself he's going to fall like I know I, I gotta prepare myself for what I'm gonna see in like, the bucket it's you and a firefighter so there's another communication issue because you're not only having to communicate with him you're also having to communicate with your people on the ground. It's like carrying on two conversations at one time. They identified this potential risk. And so I assume that she came down from the bucket then. And honestly, when you're, when you're yelling back and forth and have, you know, the foghorn out trying to at least give him information, just saying, Hey bud, you are not alone in this. We are trying to establish a communication line with you. We are trying to get to you. He was telling us, don't come up. I'll hurt you. If you come up, we could hear these things. We were, we were talking about it. The communication between us and the bucket, and below was all radio communication and you could tell like my captain had arrived at that point he had established scene command at that time and he had made the decision along with the fire department to lower the bucket truck and it was disheartening to me because i knew that we we could climb the tower i think if we needed to but i knew that that whoever went up it was going to be a Uh, potential risk there. That's the thing that I think a lot of people in the public forget sometimes is that we're not only concerned about the the safety of the person that we're talking to, but we have to be cognizant of our own safety. And in this case, the safety of the firefighter that was there assisting you, those concerns often drive what we can and what we cannot do. Right. So you come down and then what happened then? My hero partner I have to say this because 
this man may, you know, took it upon himself to say, no more waiting here on the ground. We're not going to wait here on the ground. This guy's going to kill himself and we're going to just be standing here watching it. All right. So the, the decision is made to come down. And so you get down there. What did you guys come up with next? So it wasn't even a team decision. This was one person who said, we are not able to communicate well with him. It is dangerous for us to be in his path down here. We, he has no cell phone. He is continuing to teeter on the edge. You know, at one point it looked like it took, he took something pill wise. He was slicing his arm multiple times. Like you could see these things happening. You could see that it was progressing. So I have a co worker by the name of Master Police Officer Al Cooper. And he just started gearing up like he took his stuff off and made the decision that he was going to go up. And, you know, nobody else was volunteering. <laughs> and, uh, Listen, I'm 6'4", you know, 240. I don't know that I could do what he was doing. So. <laughs> I don't even think it really became a decision at that point. I saw him gearing up. So I was like, me too. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So I asked my captain, I said, you know, can I go? <laughs> he was like, yeah, go. <laughs> so uh, I took my outer carrier off, um, which has a lot of my fun stuff on it, but it was heavy and in the way. So I took it off. You could see from the bottom of the tower that there was a cable that ran from the bottom to the top. And in our brilliant minds, we were like, well, we can hook to that. So <laughs> the fire department has <laughs> this belt that has a carabiner on it. It's supposed to keep you in the bucket truck. So we were brilliant. We were like, we can just attach ourselves to the to the cable. We're gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be fine. So both of us belted up, hooked ourselves to the wire, and quickly I realized that that was useless. Like it was more weight than anything. So stupid. <laughs> you say it's stupid, but I mean you're not. You have to act. You don't have time to really think, well, I can do this or I can do that. You know, this is a situation. No time. Did you get any training uh, on climbing cell phone towers when you were at the police academy? No, actually, this is the farthest thing from my radar. Like we were pulling stuff completely out our ass at this point. Uh, what I'm getting at is that this right here is probably something you never even considered before. And you're having to adapt on the go. You, you have master police officer. He's a heck of a good guy, but that's not the captain. And that's no. not the chief, but this guy came up with this plan and it's just like, you know what? Let's do it. We did. And uh, <laughs> so I want to put things into perspective here for a moment. I want to tell everybody that I am five, two and like a quarter. Okay. <laughs> Round five, two. We're not going to go under five, two. Okay. <laughs> so 130 pounds soaking wet. Al Cooper is about six, two, six, three, 170, 180 pounds. He is a string bean and a gazelle of a man. Like he, when he runs for every one stride, I've taken five. <laughs> and so <laughs> this tower is very tall and I'm petrified of heights absolutely terrified. My husband jokes every year because he puts the Christmas lights on the, on our house. We have a two story house, but one side sits very tall because we sit on a hill. 
and I'm petrified. Like I start shaking and my heart goes into my throat. Every time I think of looking down and not having something to catch me or hold me in or attach me to something. So, you know, when he made it in his mind that he was going to go up the tower, he was going to go up the tower and he wasn't going to stop until he got to where he felt he could communicate. So we hook ourselves to this wire and I'm like, brilliant, we've got this. We're going to go up this tower. And I start climbing and I'm like, wow, I'm really out of shape. <laughs> really fast. So we're, we're going hand over foot and I'm just like, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. I'm just focusing on Cooper's shoes, which keep moving. You know, I know he's going to continue up this stupid tower until he reaches the very top and we're not going to stop for a break or for coffee. <laughs> you know, this was actually a very eye-opening moment because I had eight minutes. It took us eight minutes of quick climbing from the bottom to the top. Well, for the where we stopped, where we could communicate. And during those eight minutes, I have to sit here and reflect. I have to sit here and say that in those minutes, it gives you a lot of time to think. And I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say to this guy. That all happens very naturally. I'm thinking about like we made a really big choice to come up this tower. I'm thinking about my three kids at home. Because as we started climbing, I recognized early on, you know, we talk about our body's reaction to stress. Learned about it a million and a half times. We talk about tunnel vision, about being, you know, hyper-focused on the mission or getting kind of tunneled into like what our mission is. In those moments, I lost all of my saliva. So not only was I focused on just continuing to breathe, I didn't have anything to replace that saliva. And, you know, I knew that it was my body's fight or flight happening. I knew I was scared. I knew that in my head, I'm like, people, human beings, little five foot two beings don't climb 250 foot towers to do this, you know? And so I knew my body was reacting. And so I was focusing on my box breathing. And I was focusing on trying to focus on a game plan and focusing on his feet and not looking down. And I was thinking to myself, this really could end very badly for Cooper and I or Cooper or myself or this guy. You know, I'm really, really concerned for his safety and well-being. And so you're kind of replaying what's going to happen as you get up there and you know full well there's nothing holding you on. You know, we wore those little belts with our little carabiners, but what I very quickly recognized and saw was there's nothing that stops you from the top to the bottom. So like, yeah, fixed to this wire, but all it's going to do is make sure I plant at the base of the tower. I'm not going to fall into the fence. <laughs> so I needed to make sure my grip was good and that my feet placement was perfect. Uh, and I could see my white knuckles. I could see myself gripping this thing so tight and so hard. Nothing was going to break my grip. I, I kept telling myself just, you know, one more step. And I, I saw as these platforms were passing us, I was like, man, that's a really good stopping point. <laughs> <laughs> Good water break. We finally get to the second platform. 
right below the top platform. It was perfect because it's in the shape of an X. And so it's just a very narrow walkway that kind of goes crisscross and then has a staircase or like a ladder, a hand over foot ladder to the top platform just below him. So he can hear everything that we're saying. I can hear everything he's saying. And we can finally establish that first line of communication. And now when we first got to that platform, as you can imagine, my out of shape self was just gasping for air at that point. And um, I was just kind of trying to take in, and I'm sure Al was doing the same thing. We're kind of just trying to take in what he's doing, where he's at. You know, I don't know if he's got any other weapons on him. I don't know if he's got a gun or something like that. I have no idea. So we're just kind of keeping our distance at that point and kind of observing. And he is pacing around. And like I said before, he had an aluminum rod. And he was just as hard as he could hitting the railing and very angry. I just started with our CIT training. I just said, Hey bud, I'm Brittany. I've been the one talking to you this whole time, trying to, trying to reach out, you know, what's your name? Just tell me your name. And you know, he'd yell and scream about things going on in his life. And I said, well, I'm just here to listen. I want, I want you to tell me all that's going on in your life right now. I'm, I'm, I'm here to help Cooper. Same thing. You know, we are, we're doing this dialogue back and forth and it's so cool with Cooper because he is such an empathetic person that if he felt that I was going off rail with him, like I wasn't making the progress that he, he thought we should be making, he would just go right in and start in on a new topic. We'd be trying different tactics to try and, you know, get him to deescalate. You know, this dialogue happened for about almost three hours with him on and off. <laughs> Can I just point out something? I cannot imagine what your legs must have felt like at that point right there to go through that type of physical exertion and then all of a sudden stationary. Because I can tell you, if I'm on that platform, I'm still white knuckling it. <laughs> With my luck, I would have gotten a leg cramp or something because I would have been standing so still. You know, you, you were talking about try, trying to figure out what he's doing, but you have to orient yourself to your physical situation too. Probably never been on top of a cell tower before. So, so what, what things look like up here? And then to have the presence of mind to start talking and going back and forth. Three hours. Did it feel like three hours or did it feel like much shorter or much longer? It felt like three hours. <laughs> I think that's where the adrenaline was really taking over because my body's reactions at that point, I got saliva back, <laughs> which was great, but I could feel my lips drying out. It's funny because on the ground level, there was wind gusts. You know, we had about an eight mile an hour wind going on down at the base. The drone was picking up 40 mile an hour winds where we were. And so the worst part, in my opinion, was these wind gusts where you have no barrier. I mean, you have a little barrier. You've got, you've got a very short barrier beside you. Uh, these little open metal bars that sit. So there's no mesh in between. You literally have metal bar, metal bar, and air. These wind gusts would happen and they'd almost knock you over. Like it, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little person <laughs> and it was, it was throwing me around 40 miles per hour, depending on the drone. 
oftentimes that becomes uh, the drone becomes unstable because it has that much impact on its stability. So I can only imagine what it did to your stability as you're up on this. Again, you can't just focus on one task. You can't just focus on not getting blown off because you have to continue this dialogue and you have to listen to what your partner's saying and all these things are going on. It had to be incredibly taxing both mentally and physically to not, I mean, it was bad enough just getting there. But once you got there, that just had to just drain you. It was exhausting. And um, you're also listening to like to add insult to injury. You're listening to what's going on downstairs. You know, you've got command staff, you've now got fire and rescue, you have command staff, you have... Is the media there? Not yet. Not yet. They found out about this a little bit later. But you know what really irked me so bad? We've done all this and you hear citizens at the base of the tower yelling, jump, jump do it because to them it's probably like a reality show you know they, they don't understand the the impact of the the outcome of something like this yeah and we're trying to keep him calm we're trying to get him to a place where he can start using his calm side of his brain you know at this point he is so elevated and so distraught had an argument love of his life he's married love of his life was going to leave him And in those moments, nothing else mattered because she was going to leave him. He had nothing to live for in his mind. And my whole goal was to say, look, we've climbed up here because we care. I'm not going down until you go down with us. We're not going anywhere. We want you to tell your story and we want to help you work through this and get you the resources and help that's going to move us through this point. Because this is a point in time that if you decide to jump, it's done and over with. And the minute you leave this platform, you're going to regret it. Promise you, you're going to regret it. Every time somebody has attempted suicide, the first thing that they say afterwards was the minute I pulled the trigger, the minute I I stepped off the platform, I was like, I just wanted to stop the pain. I just wanted to stop whatever it was that was going on at that moment. I wanted to stop it. Maybe not permanently, but I didn't have any other choice. And so we were, we were talking through this and trying to give him as many other options as we possibly could. And at one point while we were down there and while we were doing this dialogue, he cut dialogue. He stopped. And I remember him swiftly walking to the back of the tower where, like, if you're looking at it, it's just a giant square. We walked to the back corner where we were not and climbed the barrier on that backside. And if you ever saw Titanic where she's standing at the the back of the ship and she's just kind of holding her arms out, he was doing that. I get up to the top and Al has his arms out in front of him to say, I'm here and I'm harmless. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to get closer. I want to help you. Please let me help you. Again, reinitiating that dialogue with him and put like, now you're face to face. It becomes very real that this poor guy is just at his wit's end. And you could just see the, the look of loss on his face. And Al and him were doing a very good job of just trying to talk it out and trying to just get him to climb down. And we were at this point and just negotiating. I got really frustrated at this point because here we are on a more dangerous platform. We are now face to face with him. 
and I hear over the radio someone say, hey, now's your chance. Like what? <laughs> what do you want me to do? Now's my chance for what? Taser? Right. Uh, go hands on? Like, what do you want me to do? I shut my radio off. I turned it off. I said, I, I don't want him to hear this. He can hear everything right beside us. So I got frustrated and I turned my radio off. Don't think that I wasn't thinking maybe we could go hands on. Maybe we could try that. You know, in your mind, you're going through all of the training that you've ever gone through and you're racking your brain trying to say, wow, we are at a really, really tough spot right here because if I go hands on, I own it. If I go hands on at this moment, I better commit. And when I commit, I got to win. And so in my head, I'm saying this guy is every bit as tall as Cooper and has about 120 pounds on him. Me being five, two, I'm like, <laughs> but taser's not an option, right? So taser's not an option. I cut that out of the picture long ago because taser that height, you're, you're catastrophic. So I knew that if I had drawn my taser at that point, it wasn't going to work. Hands-on really isn't an option. For us, was it more dangerous to do that? If you go hands-on, even if you get control of him and you handcuff him, there's still the matter of, of getting him down physically. I mean, really, the only realistic option is for him to go down himself. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's the only realistic thing we got going here. I knew that we were just going to have to stay up here as long as it took for him to make the decision himself. Now we can assist in this process. Like there were some things that we were focused on. We had um, a technical rescue team from Harrisonburg that had the uh, harnesses and training to get down. We had them en route and I didn't call them the office of emergency management systems did along with my captain. They said, you know, Hey, I know they're two hours away, but let's try, let's try and get them there and at least have them there. If he makes a decision to come down, we're not going to give them the option to just climb down himself. We're going to say, we're going to hook you in and we're going to help you through that process. But we weren't there yet. He still was very up and down. There was a time, again, he kept asking for his wife. He wanted to talk to her. And in his mind, he needed to hear from her that she wasn't going to leave him is what he was looking for. Again, like I said before, that was scary to me because... You know, when somebody wants to talk to the loved one that is trying to leave them, if they say the wrong thing, is that going to be the thing that drives him to just say, well, again, I felt like it. I'm going to jump. So Cooper and I talked, you know, we didn't have much time, but you know, I said, I have my phone. Let's just go ahead and call her. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? If he, if he's going to jump anyway, we did everything in our power. We pulled all the stops. If that doesn't work, or if it starts escalating things, if I see that it's getting him more escalated, then let's close it off and reinitiate our dialogue. You know, so we called her and it did escalate him initially because she was, she was pissed off that he was up there. 
you know, I'm with the kids. I, you know, and he thought she was cheating on him, thought she was with some other person. She wasn't, she was by herself with her kids. So she starts talking to him on the phone. They start hashing out the reasons why she's leaving him. You know, I, I offered up the suggestion to both of them. I said, you know, Hey, is it even a possibility that if he goes and gets help for the issues that you're talking about, is there a possibility of you taking him back? And she says, he's the love of my life. If he got all of those things squared away, absolutely. I have a family with him. Of course I would take him back, but he's, he's just not, he's not willing to do that right now. I said, you know, I asked him, I said, you've heard it from her mouth. It's not from me. This isn't me promising you things that I can't promise. You know, I'm, I'm telling you what she's saying. She's telling you these things here and now, you know, are you willing to go get help? Pondered it, pondered it for a long time and said, you know, she's worth it. You know, we continued our dialogue for what felt like forever. We started negotiating how we were going to end this. And I said, you know, well, Cooper and I, this was not just me, by the way. If I say I, it's always going to be Cooper and I. We tried to get him down to that second platform because the top platform, like I said before, had a very, very, very shallow, very low bar. If any one of us, just the wind gusts, like I said, terrified of these wind gusts, <laughs> the closer we got to the edge, there's nothing stopping you from going over the tower and falling to your doom. So the goal was to get him to a platform that had a little bit of a higher barrier. And my goal was to get him secured to the tower. I want him up there so that there's no other, like no more negotiating. We're secured. You know, everything is peaceful. It's secure. So finally he agreed to go down to the second platform. We all went down to the second platform. Now the problem with the second platform that we didn't really think about was the fact that again, it's in the shape of an X and it is very narrow. Like you can squish two full grown people side by side. It is very narrow. And when you're in that close of proximity with somebody who I haven't searched him, I don't know what he has, you know, I know he's put down his aluminum rod. I think that's out of the picture. Still big dude. We've got a good rapport going, but he's still very up and down. And I don't know. I never did get a full picture of like what was in his system. Cause I'm, I'm not a 1000% that there wasn't other things on board. I think that there was something, something on board because every few minutes we'd go from very calm to very escalated. You could tell that he was still thinking about it. He kept kind of looking out to the horizon and you could see his wheels turning. We were trying to negotiate at that point. Okay, now we're at the second tier. Can I handcuff you to the ladder for my safety, for your safety, just to make me feel better? Because I'm not feeling good right now. Still not feeling good. Yeah. I mean, officer safety wise, this was just a very tight spot. It wasn't ideal. It's not my favorite part of it. And at one point, like I said, he was looking off into the horizon. He's not handcuffed. He's not searched. And he reached for something very quickly. And he pulled out a blade. He pulled out a pocket knife. He flipped out the blade. And I, I stepped back as best I could. But again, Al's right behind me. It's not like I have far to go. And I'm right in front of Cooper and I'm in between Cooper and, and him. And he pulls out this knife. First thing I think to do is to put my hand on my sidearm because I'm like, I don't want this to be the end here. We've been up here for so long. 
and we've done such a good job of getting to this moment. Do not let this be the last moment we have up here. This is not going to be good. Do not want to make this decision. And I told him, I said, put that away. I said, don't do that. Put that away. Don't be stupid. We're here with you. I'm not going to shoot you. You know, this is not how we're going to end this. Said it kind of jokingly. I didn't mean it jokingly. But I was trying to stay light because I felt like if he thought I was going to shoot him, would that have pushed him to like make a step forward? And I just joked with him. I was like, stop. Put it away. Put it away. And he did. Um, and I said, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Can you just stand there and let me, let me take that, you know, keep your hands away from it and let me take it. And he did. And that was very scary. I mean, that was probably scarier than the heights because I thought I was going to actually have to do something I really didn't want to do. I was like, I am up here to save you. I'm not up here to hurt you. Like that, that was the farthest thing off my radar. I, I never thought that that would even be, he let me take it. And after some more negotiating, I finally was able to handcuff him to the ladder. And at that moment, it's like all of the adrenaline that was peaking has now crashed because now I've searched him. I have his weapons. He's safe. He can't go anywhere. There's nowhere for him to go. He can't jump down the ladder. He's stuck. We indicate to command. We have him secured. Whoever you're going to send up here, send them up here now. Get them up here. I want them here. Uh, the only thing that we did promise him and that I, I keep my promises. I don't remember everybody else, but if I make a promise in one of those scenarios, I'm going to keep it. He asked for a cigarette. I said, you can smoke a damn pack. <laughs> you want a pack of cigarettes? I'm going to give you a pack of cigarettes. And so when they came up, I, I told my command staff, I said, I made this promise. You get him a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I don't care how much we go buy some. I mean, I'm a non-smoker and I, I think I need a cigarette by the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, all of us kind of were in the same boat. I said, there's only two things I need you to bring us. I said, cigarettes, a light, well, three things really. Huh? Cigarettes, a lighter, and water. I needed water. It was exhausting. That was exhausting. And I cannot tell you the initial relief to see other people <laughs> come up the tower. They were hooked in and strapped in, and they had their little hard hats on. And I was like, for you. <laughs> I love you, but you're a little late. So, but that, that that's a great point right there. That sense of isolation. Well, when you're up there like that, it's like seeing another human being. It's like it's got to be what it's like stranded on an island, and the, so the ship comes in. You know, it's like yeah, finally, finally. Yes, yeah, like, I didn't take you so long. <laughs> so we were we were excited. We drank our water. We kind of relaxed for a little bit. Like I'm not saying we let our guard down. Still, big dude, but he's you know he's contained. Then the debate started about his harness system. So he wanted to just, he's like, I'm a tree climber. I climbed up here. I can climb myself back down. <laughs> like that ain't happening. You're going to be tethered to something, whether you like it or not. I was like, I'm happy to talk through this with you and explain why we need to do that. They were wanting to do a pulley system and just roll him down. <laughs> they didn't want him to take the steps. And I was like, he's not going to do that. And then we're going to be fighting again. And I don't want to fight. And, I said, you know, wear the harness and you can climb down the steps and at least then we'll have you like they can draw you down as you go. It's all in your control. But if you decide to let go, they have you. <laughs> 
So all this work wasn't for nothing. Right. You know, I'm like, you're going down safely. And he agreed to it and he went down safely. And then they went down behind him and left us there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Brent, can I just point something out? Hmm. You know, after all this, and after listening to her story, the one thing we never talked about before was the getting down part. You're still 250 feet up in the air. You're exhausted. And they just left you. It's like <laughs> they took the rowboat, went back to the ship, and I'm still here. So so how did you guys get down then? It was just the same way we climbed up. So that was actually, for me, mentally a little bit more challenging because I could see how high up we were. And I had to look down to figure out my foot placement. Oh, boy. I can promise you that my heart was right here the entire time because I was like, oh, please don't fall. Please don't fall. (laughs) So it was a lot slower getting down than it was climbing up, thank God. (laughs) And the placement of my foot, like I made sure to be like, okay, I hit it. I feel it. I see it. I'm on the step, (laughs) hand over foot all the way down. And as the ground got closer, I'm like, okay, okay, there's the ground. I can see it. And uh, the minute my foot hit the dirt, the ground, the gravel, it was just like, okay, now I'm really tired and I need a nap. (laughs) Okay, that was traumatic. <laughs> really? I need to go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I, I assume by now we're probably five or six hours at most into your shift. Uh, we were only about four and a half hours into my shift. I was just getting on at that time, so we were right at four. He went and, and was checked out. And uh, how did the agency handle that with uh, with you and Cooper? So it's funny, actually. So we got the high five. You know, they're like, this is a great job. Uh, I heard a lot of my staff say they looked at me a lot differently now than they did before. Like there was uh, one of my coworkers who's always, she, she came on after me and has since gone on to be a magistrate. And she said, you know, I really looked up to you before this, but oh my God, I cannot, I would not have gone up there. And nothing against her or anybody else. I wouldn't expect anybody else to have wanted to do that other than for the sake of getting him back down and safe. You're not thinking, I'm thinking about my safety, but I'm not thinking about my safety at that moment. You know, I care about it. I want to come home safe and sound and my safety is a priority. But when you make a decision to do something like that, you know that there are inherent risks. You can mitigate them. But there's still risk. And there's still risk. I mean, and that's any part of our job. That's every day. You know, you know, our job is, again, inherently risky. But there's practices and policies and training in place to try and mitigate that. I, I was trying to imagine what the perspective had to, had to have been for the people that were down at the bottom of the tower. Watching my brother and my sister up there, knowing I can't render immediate assistance. You know, if you and I are together and I'm providing cover for you, something goes down, I can, I can immediately respond, but you're 250 feet away straight up. And that had to be hard for the people who were on scene, but not up on the scene. Right. Oh, I can't, I can't imagine. I, I could not have stayed down there. I can promise you that my heart would have been with them the whole time. I would not have been able to do that. 
And so they were very supportive. Um, Cooper was ending his shift at 6 p.m. And I just told him, go home. I said, you have done enough, sir. Go home. Now, he stayed. He stayed and did the remainder of his shift. He didn't want to go home. And some of the other coworkers went and got us some cold, like slushy drinks. I was like, yeah. This is the best liquid I've ever had in my life. It right was here. the best liquid <laughs> ever in my entire life. The first gulp, I was like, yes. Can, can I just point out something? Give another shout out to Cooper. Heck of a guy. J- just so our listeners know, we offered up the opportunity for him to come and, and be a part of the story. But he is such a humble, humble guy. I can't say enough good things about him in particular, in our profession in general, that their willingness to do things, not for the glory, not not for the recognition, but just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm humbled by those people. He, he definitely is like one of my favorite human beings in existence. He's he's always like that. And he's very uh, mission oriented. Like like I said before, with the, the Culpeper area being our mission field, he takes it a step further. He's done mission trips across seas and like his life is to help other people. He, he volunteers at his church every week and, and does a lot for our community, volunteers his skills, um, DJing and uh, doing the sound system work for the church. And, and different things like that. So he's an incredible person. And I have to say, um, like I said before, he's one of my favorite people and certainly a mentor of mine. Um, he was in this profession long before I was. And um, as I've progressed, even through my ranks, I've always looked to him for guidance. So uh, he's definitely a shining star through this whole thing. Just to point out again, he's the one that says, you know what? We, we got to go. We got to go up. Okay, let's go. Let's do this thing here. I I know that you guys have been uh, recognized or you've received awards for this. uh, But I do want to point out for for our listeners as we're wrapping things up that even when we have co-responders, even when we're dealing with somebody that doesn't have any real criminal intent, there is still a danger element involved in these interactions. Unfortunately, society today, the ones that make the news are, are the ones where the officer is forced to do something to protect themselves or protect others. What doesn't make the news often enough are stories like this one right here. The danger, the risk was still there. It just didn't happen because you guys handled it so incredibly well. And, and so it, as you're working with your with your folks and, and do, do you teach at the academy at all? You do. And and so when you, when you're sharing this story, you know, it's, it's, it's that balancing act of, you know, encouraging people to be that selfless servant, but also to do things in as safe a manner as possible to mitigate it. This could have ended badly, but you guys did it in such a manner that it didn't. And, you know, thankfully he came down. What's the message that you would tell those that are in the profession now as far as these incidents? I mean, it sounds like that listening was really important. I would say there's a couple different things I would focus on. I would say be a community leader, first and foremost. Your community where you're working is your mission field. Like I said, it is your mission field. You're trying to make your space a better place to live for everybody that's living there working there, visiting there, vacationing there, whatever the case might be, they matter. You know, we have been very lucky that our agency has allowed us to do all of this mental health training. Let me tell you that everything you respond to has a mental health nexus, whether it's addiction, whether it's family domestic abuse, whether it's 
trauma from childhood that they're dealing with and it's manifested some way, mental health issue, diagnosed or otherwise, elderly, kids or adults with autism, dementia, different things like that. What I would say to that is if your agency won't allow you to get the training, there's free webinars everywhere. There's free training everywhere you look. Go on and Google different law enforcement companies that offer that free training. Call your academy. See if they're willing to offer something along those lines so that you can go at no cost to your agency to mitigate those costs. Um, do that for your community. It's not only for yourself, it's for your community. Wait, I love what you said about the community, though, and you started off with it. Uh, that relationship right there, it, it, it helps you to retain that benefit of the doubt. So if things do go sideways, now they're advocating for you. Uh, and start that early on in your career. Understand that when your agency is pushing for you to go play with the kids, hand out stickers, go to these events, it's twofold. You get something out of it too. And a lot of these people say, I didn't get into law enforcement to go be warm and fuzzy. I, I wanted to stop crime. Yeah, you're right. It starts when they're little. You know, those relationships you're forming might be that path changer for these kids, for your people. You might make such an impact with that one person that all of a sudden got them to change a mindset. Uh, a lot of times people don't make the effort to try to make a difference because, uh, you know what, I can't change the world. But I would submit to you that Brittany changed this guy's world. She, she and Cooper did it uh, on that date. And, and they made a difference that not many people can ever say that they made in their lives. And, and it, I'm completely blown away by stories like that. Yeah, it's not just one person's life. It's his wife. It's his, you know, his family. So this is it has a ripple effect that this one little incident has. So an amazing story. And we were so thankful that you have taken the time today to, to tell us. Well, I appreciate you guys allowing me the opportunity and hopefully somebody, somebody gets something from it. We can't end this podcast without mentioning that if someone is going through a suicidal crisis or an emotional distress, there is a lifeline out there. Uh, actually, they just instituted a new shortened version of the number you can call. It's 988. That's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 988 is the number to call. So if you do find yourself going through some sort of crisis, there is help available out there to, uh, to help you through it. Brittany, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for making an impact, not only that day, but you made an impact on me. And I think you're going to be making an impact on the listeners. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.